Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. COVID-19, our cases appear to be going in the right direction. An end to Auckland's level four lockdown might be in sight. Don't want to count the chickens. Vaccination passports are on the way here, it seems. But they have just been ditched in England before they even appeared. Dr Chris Smith, consultant clinical virologist based in the UK, is with us. Hi, Chris. Hello, Kim. What is the story with these vaccination passports? The plan was in England anyway, to gain entry to crowded places, you would need one. Why have they been ditched? Back in August, Boris Johnson said that he anticipated, as nightclubs opened up, that come September, that you would need some kind of passport to get into one. And so it was very surprising that last weekend, our health secretary, Sajid Javid, appeared on one of the BBC's main news and current affairs programmes and said, we're dropping the idea. And of course, there was a lot of speculation this week and we haven't seen the the main reason, but the main reason that we all know, and and I've said myself why I think I'm doubtful that this would work, is that if you have a, a mechanism for stopping something and you literally have a gateway, that if this is in place, nothing goes through and if it isn't there, everything goes through, that is a proper kind of on-off switch and a passport is like that. So if you have a vaccine that can be like an on-off switch and if you've got it, you can't be infected, that sounds like a tremendous idea. But the problem is the vaccines don't work like that. The vaccines that we have against the coronavirus are absolutely brilliant at stopping people becoming severely unwell. In fact, I've just dealt with an outbreak in a hospital today and uh, we had five or six patients, all elderly, all infected with coronavirus because of an outbreak in a hospital. But not a single one of them has any symptoms, all of them double vaccinated, compared with one staff member not vaccinated, feeling pretty poorly at home. So we've got a situation that you can still catch the infection despite being vaccinated. And we think that... So in prob- fact, because the vaccine masks the infection. It could do. And we think that based on the numbers we have, and this is true pretty much across the board, the vaccines initially, they do produce pretty robust protection against infection. That's just infection, not severe disease, just infection. But with time, that does wane. So you end up after a number of months at a situation where they're working about two thirds of the time. So if you've been vaccinated, you are protected from infection two thirds of the time. But one third of the time, you could still catch the infection. You'll probably have no symptoms or very trivial symptoms, assuming you've mounted a response to the vaccine but you could still pass it on because the other piece of data we got from Public Health England and COVID-19, our cases appear to be going in the right direction. An end to Auckland's level four lockdown might be in sight. Don't want to count the chickens. Vaccination passports are on the way here, it seems, but they have just been ditched in England 
before they even appeared. Dr. Chris Smith, consultant, clinical virologist based in the UK, is with us. Hi, Chris. Hello, Kim. What is the story with these vaccination passports? The plan was, in England anyway, to gain entry to crowded places you would need one. Why have they been ditched? Back in August, Boris Johnson said that he anticipated, as nightclubs opened up, that come September, that you would need some kind of passport to get into one. And so it was very surprising that last weekend our health secretary, Sajid Javid, appeared on one of the BBC's main news and current affairs programmes and said, we're dropping the idea. And of course, there was a lot of speculation this week, and we haven't seen the the main reason, but the main reason that we all know, and, and I've said myself why I think I'm doubtful that this would work, is that if you have a mechanism for stopping something and you literally have a gateway that if this is in place, nothing goes through, and if it isn't there, everything goes through, that is a proper kind of on-off switch, and a passport is like that. So if you have a vaccine that can be like an on-off switch, and if you've got it, you can't be infected, that sounds like a tremendous idea. But the problem is the vaccines don't work like that. The vaccines that we have against the coronavirus are absolutely brilliant at stopping people becoming severely unwell. In fact, I've just dealt with an outbreak in a hospital today and uh, we had five or six patients, all elderly, all infected with coronavirus because of an outbreak in a hospital, but not a single one of them has any symptoms, all of them double vaccinated, compared with one staff member not vaccinated, feeling pretty poorly at home. So we've got a situation that you can still catch the infection despite being vaccinated. And we think that... So in prob- fact, because the vaccine masks the infection. It could do. And we think that based on the numbers we have, and this is true pretty much across the board, the vaccines initially, they do produce pretty robust protection against infection. That's just infection, not severe disease, just infection. But with time, that does wane. So you end up, after a number of months, at a situation where they're working about two-thirds of the time. So if you've been vaccinated, you are protected from infection two-thirds of the time. But one-third of the time, you could still catch the infection. You'll probably have no symptoms or very trivial symptoms, assuming you've mounted a response to the vaccine but you could still pass it on because the other piece of data we got from Public Health England and other studies that we've done here recently suggests that people, when they get a breakthrough infection in that way, do develop high levels of virus in their nose and throat. And it's sort of comparable to the levels that people have when they're unvaccinated, suggesting that you could well be capable of transmitting the infection on. And so I think the government realised that this would be very difficult to implement, very difficult to enforce. It would be a major headache, actually, for certain sectors of the industry, which have already been battered to within an inch of their lives by various restrictions and the coronavirus pandemic. And would it deliver? Would it actually make a difference? Because you'd only therefore catch half the cases because people would have passports, they could still potentially get in. And it may even go worse than that, because it may be it, it lulls us into a false sense of security. I'm in here, I'm fine, we're all double jabbed. But in fact, loads of cases in there. And because people perhaps are letting their guard down more, it might lead to more transmission. So the government have said, we're not going to go down that path, but 
in a sort of announcement this week from Downing Street at one of their famous Downing Street press briefings where we also heard about the rationale for offering the vaccination to children 12 to 15. We also heard about the fact that there is this toolkit that they envisage for winter and one of the things in that tool chest is vaccine passports that could be brought back into play later if cases go in the wrong direction and it's uh, necessary to try and resort to other measures of control. There's another reason for insisting on a vaccine passport to crowded places, and it is simply to encourage people to get vaccinated. Yep. Is that not a strong argument? A lot of people sort of cynically said the government addressing this up as infection control, but what it very effectively does is it drives up uptake among a certain sector of society who probably want to frequent those sorts of venues. Now, I know that you are an ardent nightclub goer, Kim. I know that it's, you know, it's difficult ardent. turning up for your Saturday morning programme after you've been Look, gigging out all night. Away. I know, I, I know, uh, I know. Away. But, you know, not everyone is as keen, but lots of young people are following your lead into those nightclubs on a regular basis. And as a result, it was actually cynically quite a clever way of saying uh, there's this thing coming, it's looming on the horizon, you won't better get in and it takes a while to build the immunity and you've got to have two of these hits so go and get jabbed. What might have motivated that? Well here in the UK while we had 96% vaccine uptake in some sectors of society and 90% of UK adults overall have so far received at least one dose of vaccine which is the most amazing uptake we've ever seen with any kind of vaccine programme there's a big gaping gap right at the bottom of the age distribution The people under the age of 30 were much less keen to go and get jabbed. In fact, there was about a 30% shortfall. So about 3 million people actually in the under 30s were not getting vaccinated, one in three. And that was a big group that were fueling these outbreaks. And the government were very worried about it because all those people are going to be off to work, off to school, off to university, back on public transport. And of course, as you suggest, off to nightclubs. Great opportunity for an outbreak, pushing the numbers in the wrong direction. So tell them you need a vaccine passport in order to go and carry on doing these things. And of course, what it has done is led to an uptick in uptake. It has. So it's an ethical issue as well. In New Zealand, we're tossing that around. There are people who claim that it will increase equality because inequality because uh, a lot of Maori and Pacific more Maori and Pacific Islanders remain unvaccinated um, than the rest of the population. I think there's also so, a thing that makes people very huh? uncomfortable because we are we are seeing headlines where people are saying never in the history of a Western democracy have I had to go and volunteer what is effectively personal health data in order to go about something which I would day to day do as a routine thing like go to a nightclub but at the same time it was also not being implemented in a in a comprehensive way there there was a big mistake made in the UK last year where it was obvious that someone sat down with a piece of paper and said well on an average night out with this number of people going out to say pubs and clubs and so on there's this many infections so if we shorten the drinking period instead of 11 o'clock when we stop serving if we make chucking out time 10 o'clock in the evening that's say let's say for the sake of argument that reduces drinking hours by 25% that will cause 25% fewer infections and to to someone just doing the maths yeah look straightforward but what that doesn't capture is the human psychology what did it do it led to a huge great exodus at 10 o'clock all out onto the street nights young right back to my place mentality and there was a there was then a, an enormous surge in infections because people were drinking not responsibly and with peer oversight in well curated drinking environments they're all off to each other's homes where of course everyone lets their hair down more when they're 
out of sight, out of mind. And there's a danger that the same could sort of happen with, with this sort of thing, that you'll say nightclubs enforce this, but pubs and, and other venues don't. So instead, everyone just doesn't go to the nightclub. Unfortunately for you, Kim, they go to the pub instead. What's life going to be not worth living, I can tell you. Um, here is a couple of questions from listeners, um, because I'll leave them to the end and then too many get unanswered. <laughs> Do I like this one. Do you know why so much spit is required for a PCR saliva test? Um, this individual says that he had to produce five millimetres. Well, that's when a lot. He had yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, that's yeah. quite hard. You chew on an elastic band for a long time to produce that much. It made him wonder if it was like the Monty Python sketch where the customer for life insurance had to produce 12 gallons of urine and when he asked what he should do with it, was told to throw it away. Throw it away? I was months collecting it. Why do you need so much anyway? Um, and in response, he was told they just wanted to make sure he was serious. That does sound like a lot of saliva. Is that necessary? Well, the the thing is, PCR is a very sensitive tool and works very well, but it's only sensitive if there's enough template there for it to work on. And while brushings from the area where the virus is growing can still miss cases, it does usually release a a reasonable amount of virus and therefore a reasonable amount of genetic template. Saliva can be very dilute. It can also contain a lot of what are called inhibitors. So uh, in other words, when you run the sort of elastic band around your mouth, chomp away on your cheek and then spit out the saliva sample, uh, your breakfast, lunch and dinner is in there as well and all the other microbes that inhabit your oral cavity and all the other nasties and things that you should have washed away and didn't. And as a result, those sorts of chemistries, those those biochemicals in there and other bits and pieces can make it more difficult for some some of these reactions to operate then that's good in having an inhibitor and so there's a com- there's a combination of a dilution effect there's also difficulty sometimes with getting enough that you can dilute it enough to get rid of the nasties and still have enough template there for the reaction to work. So usually they'll, they'll need a big volume so they can actually do a nice big extraction, concentrate it, clean it up and have enough template there for the reaction to work. So, set, so saliva tests are often a bit less sensitive, not for everything, not comprehensively, but sometimes a bit less sensitive than, than if you go directly to the horse's mouth of where the infection is so to speak, but an important tool, saliva tests? Anything that enables us to uh, do things in a way that's minimally inconvenient and and also maximally tolerant and tolerable for patients is a good idea. We know that people are a bit deterred by the invasiveness of the tests we're doing for coronavirus I and mean, people describe them as akin to feeling like they're having a brain biopsy when you're shoving you know sticks up people's noses and down their throats it's not pleasant no one enjoys this and and so it, it is easier it's similar to we got in our sexual health clinics a very big uptake in chlamydia screening when we were able to switch to a non-invasive urine-based test for chlamydia compared with when you actually had to go and have swabs done. Now, obviously, there's an embarrassment, ick factor, that you're avoiding there as well because people can just self-collect their own specimen. But it's much nicer just collecting a bit of uh, wee than it is going and having swabs shoved where the sun don't shine. And I think that is part and parcel of it too. Somebody says three of the New South Wales COVID deaths yesterday were fully vaccinated, which seems to be the case. Should we, they ask, be concerned? Well, Obviously, every death is a tragedy. But remember, these vaccines are about 95% effective. And that means if you turn it round, they're 5% not effective. About 5% of people are non-responders. 
they will catch the infection and they will have the outcome that they would have done had they not been vaccinated. And if you're an older person, a vulnerable person, some kind of underlying health problem, you may well therefore get more severe disease and you may pass away. Be careful about interpreting these things, though, because those are the cases we tend to hear about. What we don't hear about are the thousands of people who have been successfully double jabbed, encountered the virus, didn't catch it, didn't even get ill, didn't know about it. Uh, Question about saliva tests. Should you wash your mouth out before having one? Probably not in the sense that if you're not careful, there are certain things that you can wash your mouth out with, for instance, certain mouthwashes that could actually contain various things that will inhibit or block the PCR reaction from happening properly. So the best thing to do is is actually not to do that, because if there is virus there and you've washed your mouth out, you may well have washed out uh, some of the virus that was there, making it harder to detect. Why is hand sanitizer necessary if there are no surface contamination cases recorded globally, asks another. Well, we don't really know that's the case because uh, we know the virus can sit on surfaces for a little while and no one's actually done the study really that you get somebody, make them touch a surface and then lick their fingers or poke their eyes or pick their nose or something in order to test how transmissible this is. It's very hard to do and to do that in a way that's ethical, but also in a way that is standardised and a fair comparison. What we do know about these viruses is they can survive on a surface for a period of time they could potentially be picked up from a surface and transferred to a part of the body where they can establish an infection and the aforementioned anatomical sites. So therefore, it makes sense as part of good hygiene practice to just wash your hands. And and I wouldn't waste money on expensive hand gels, to be perfectly honest with you, because in many, many studies, soap and water cannot be beaten, either in terms of effectiveness, but also on price. So washing hands is is an excellent manoeuvre because it will save you from all kinds of infections of of many persuasions, including the dreaded norovirus. But it might make a tiny difference to coronavirus. The the thrust of this question is really how do we catch coronavirus? And, And that really is the key point, that it's a respiratory infection. So you could pick it up from a surface, but most of the time you're going to get it from the air. You're going to get it from particles that people have breathed out, coughed out, spat out, sung out, spoken out. And those particles are very small. The droplets that come from your airways are are rammed full of virus particles. They bob around in the air for ages. You breathe them in, they settle in your airways. And some people, if they inhale enough of them, will get the infection. So it's, it's really down to air spread and ventilation that makes a big difference here. Of course, the real use of hand sanitizer is where soap and water is not available. Well, there is that. That's true. It's also excellent diet adjunct because if you use it regularly, it makes your sandwiches for lunch taste disgusting and uh, therefore it puts you off eating them. So you you tend to ingest fewer calories and snacks. There have been uh, cases of people suffering from quite severe eczema or skin irritation from perhaps overuse of hand sanitizer. Yeah, that's a perennial problem. And we see that here, not just among the general public, but our doctors have this problem because we encourage um, a lot of hand washing to make sure, especially between patients, between every single patient, between every single case you see, absolutely must pay attention to good hand hygiene. And this really makes a difference because before we bored down on this and, and put enormous pressure on this, we were seeing very significant all over the world rates of of hospital infection and transmission between patients of things like MRSA, 
stroke, C. diff, etc. Those numbers are now extremely low in hospitals, thankfully, thanks to interventions like hand hygiene. But the problem is, yes, it comes at the cost of people do have to be careful about making sure they, they don't irritate their skin. So using things that are skin kind and contain moisturisers in them really does make a difference. Soap is quite alkaline, so it, it will dry out your skin. So it's worth spending a bit more money on a slightly nice bar of soap if you're going to use soap than the one of the cheaper ones that's basically like washing your hands with sodium carbonate. It's horrible. Uh, somebody is saying, and this goes to the efficacy of Pfizer, which you were talking about earlier, apparently data from Israel suggests that BioNTech-Pfizer is only around 50% effective against the Delta variant. Any comment on that? Yes, Israel is obviously a very good study subject because they mm. very cleverly did deals with Pfizer early on and managed to secure a lot of vaccine very quickly and this is in return for sharing their patient experience, their patient data because they have excellent electronic record keeping in Israel. Obviously that made that very attractive as a an opportunity for study for Pfizer. So there was that relationship and this gives us an interesting insight into a homogeneously vaccinated population. What they are finding is that there is a dwindling protection with time downstream of two doses. But, and it is about what I said, half, two thirds of the time people are protected from infection. That probably reflects the fact that with time, the level of antibody in the blood does drop away. And the higher your level of antibody, the greater your likelihood of being protected. But one thing we can't account for here is that Israel used a one-month window between the first dose and the second dose. What UK did, initially having been castigated for it, but subsequently hailed as you know heroes, uh, widened that to 12 weeks. And 12 weeks appears to lead to a more resilient, robust and perhaps long-term protection than four weeks. And so it might be that part of why Israel is seeing what they're seeing is because they went for that slightly narrower Inter interdose interval, but and that's also why they're now going out of the blocks fast with boosters as well to to top the immunity back up. We also know that the two vaccines, AstraZeneca's jab versus Pfizer's jab, seem to perform differently in terms of the long term protection as well. So that there may also be an element that other countries that have got a healthy proportion of the population that have received AstraZeneca vaccines may find that they get longer term, more resilient immunity, but we don't know for sure yet. Ah, oh, blimey. I mean, it's really, it's a moving target, isn't it? Uh, it's not going away anytime soon. <laughs> the, 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 the big question now is going to be, who needs a booster? When do they need a booster? How often do they need a booster? And does everyone need a booster? Or actually, is it just subsectors of the vulnerable population? Have the elderly that have been in otherwise rude health and been vaccinated, are they actually all right? Do they even need a booster? Those are the Talk questions the we really want the answers to What are the answers? What are the answers we're, we're waiting to those on a study. The University of Southampton are doing the CovBoost trial right now. Uh, they have released data to our JCVI, Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation. We're told it's got commercially sensitive angles to it so they haven't released the raw data that's because they've considered a whole bunch of different rival vaccines and some of which haven't yet been licensed so as a result then they're not giving the raw data out apparently i'm waiting to see if we can what we're going to see as the message from that but uh, this has led to our government's conclusion that the booster program will be led by pfizer's vaccine so when they start boosting people which they're apparently going to start doing for anyone over 50 in the uk this winter now that will be Pfizer jabs.
Should we embrace a booster? Well, I think it really comes down to how old you are. I think it comes down to how vulnerable you are if you were to run into coronavirus in the first place. And and therefore, if you have got a long period of time since your last vaccine and also there's a higher risk for you, then I think it's certainly not going to do any harm. It certainly will give you a, a heightened immune response and probably therefore is a good idea. Do you think that people who are immune compromised need a booster or not need a booster because it might be a bit dangerous for them i don't think there's any danger i think the danger is that people who are immunocompromised are at heightened risk of developing more severe coronavirus infection and chronic coronavirus infection we've we've got patients here in the uk who have had some kind of underlying immune problem and they've developed an infection we couldn't get rid of we we did eventually in a couple of people by using various drugs and things, but it took a while. So that's what we want to avoid. The evidence is that maybe half of people who are immunocompromised might not make a sufficiently robust immune response to vaccination, at least to the first course of vaccination. So it makes sense to do what the uh, JCVI here in the UK have advised to happen, which is that those individuals should be boosted urgently. The aim being that you, you push up whatever semblance of an immune response they made the first time to hopefully a sufficient level that they will then be protected and protected for longer. Let us speak of ivermectin. People are still asking me about it. Somebody claims that they believe there is substantial evidence to say that there is something in it. And there was some meta-analysis by Dr Tess Laurie some months ago to inform clinical guidelines on the use of ivermectin. What is your view on ivermectin in the context of COVID? We haven't seen any really robust data yet on this. It's all gone quite quiet, actually. And for anyone who is unfamiliar with ivermectin, ivermectin is an old drug that they're hoping to give a new job to because it's an anti-parasitic drug. We use it to treat worm infections and things. And it... And in horses. Some, yes. Well, also in humans. But we also, yep. um, we also uh, because we have a track record of it, it's attractive to medicine because it's already got a license. It's already well understood. We know what its warts and foibles are. So we therefore know how to use it. And when when you're starting with a new drug from scratch, you've got to learn all that. So there's always inherent dangers. Whereas if you start with an old drug and give it a new lease of life in a new way, it's much more attractive as a proposition. But the problem is that the, the world of coronavirus is, is full of uh, all kinds of snake oil cells people. And uh, hydroxychloroquine, classic example, initial studies might be quite good, might be useful. We should try this. Donald Trump started taking it. He kind of said this is a good idea. Subsequently, confirmed by the recovery trial at the University of Oxford, no evidence for use whatsoever. So ivermectin, you've got to be really cautious. We need a good quality, comprehensive study that will actually do a, a, do this in a blinded way, in a, a statistically robust way. I haven't seen data that, and I don't know if it exists, but I haven't seen it yet, if it does exist, that's, that's done that way to give us supporting evidence for whether this is a good idea or not. It might be that there are certain use cases where it would work rather well. There, there may just be statistical artefacts that are leading us down the garden path. I don't know. So you're not recommending that people take it? <laughs> no, it's, there's no evidence for recommendation at this stage. <laughs> just checking. I don't think the WHO have, have said anything other than there is no evidence for ivermectin at this time. Uh, but obviously, you know, it's not a replacement for a good quality trial to actually test this properly and give us good, solid statistics as to why not. 
Uh, Bruce tells me that there's a Lancet article about the boost of vaccination not being effective. I'm going blind on this. Do you know anything? I, I haven't seen that particular one, but I think if there was solid, comprehensive evidence that the boosters were not effective, then companies, sorry, countries like the UK would not be boosting Pfizer's bottom line to the tune of billions by using it. So um, I, th- I think that actually the evidence we have is when you give these boosters, it does translate into a considerable increase in antibody level. And the higher your antibody level, the lower your likelihood of getting infected at all or at least getting severe disease. So it's a good idea to have a high titer of antibodies. What we don't know is whether subsequent boosters will be necessary because with some things, for instance hepatitis B, we give a primary course of vaccination, then we give people a couple of boosters and they don't need any more because they've got sufficient immunity for life. That's assuming, of course, because hepatitis B doesn't change much. This virus might be different, but we may well get enough immunity to protect us once we've had a couple of boosters. Let's hope so. Excellent to talk to you again. Thank you, Dr Chris Smith. My pleasure. Virologist.